All right, you guys can grab a seat. Thank you for making it here. I know that this is a very different schedule for some of you guys. Uh, you'll probably saw them as you're coming in. There is a beauty pageant here. And I don't know if you've ever had any run-in with like pageant moms, uh, but I was just terrified. They're like, the Parks and Rec offered to have like a sit-down meeting between me and the pageant committee, and we could try to figure out if there's a compromise. And I quickly declined and said, no, we will do anything else other than that meeting. Um, they, they win, just automatically they win. So um, thank you guys for being flexible. I know that a couple people didn't get the memo and showed up this morning. For that, I apologize. Um, but you guys are here, and I'm excited. So, um, so I don't know if you saw the social media posts, and, and Ricky mentioned it last week. He also mentioned some other things from the stage that I promise you I will never say, but Ricky got away with it. You can go listen to the podcast and quickly figure that out. Um, <clears throat> but this is kind of a throwback Sunday for us. So for the first two and a half years of us being a church, we used to meet Sunday nights at 530, and we started out, if you can imagine, so there's a center divider right here. Um, so we started out, that center divider was closed, and it was about right here at the back of the screen. So we were just this little room, um, and then we thought we were hot stuff, and we grew. And so then we moved this divider back, and we were just this room, and then the Lord kept drawing people here. So then we moved the curtain, and it was like a move that wall kind of moment, and it was really dumb. And I remember, like, that was when Chuck, not Chuck, what's his name, Joanna and Jim, Chip, there it is. Uh, I don't know. What's the dude's name, Jim? What, what, I still missed it. What's his name? Chip, yeah, that's a dumb name, but uh, just kidding. Are there any chips in the room? Nope. So uh, we had like that move the wall moment, and then the Lord kept filling, and so the Lord opened up the opportunity for us to go to Sunday mornings. So this is kind of a fun time for us to reminisce, but we don't ever want to come back to Sunday nights again. So um, this will be a very rare thing. I went ahead and tried to reserve this morning a venue for this Sunday next year, assuming they have another pageant, uh, because Sunday nights are just... Uh, weird. So thank you guys for coming. Thank you for being here, for sacrificing. Uh, I know that it's late. If you fall asleep, I will call you out. There's your one warning for the night, and we will get started. So if you have your Bibles, Luke, I'm just kidding, I won't call you out. Luke 19, uh, if you're new here, we've been working our way through the book of Luke. We will, Lord willing, finish up in May, and it'll be about a three-year process that we've been working our way through the book of Luke. I'm just trying to understand who Jesus is. I mean, our entire faith all that we have is built around this guy named Jesus, uh, but do we actually know who he is? Do we know what he's done? So we've entitled this series based on a theologian's comment, A Meal with Jesus, uh, because one, this theologian stated that Jesus in the book of Luke or in any of the Gospels, Jesus was either at a meal, coming to a meal, or going from a meal. So a lot of life happened with Jesus around the dinner tables. And we have four missional communities. We want that to be the same thing that we do life, not just here once a week, but together, constantly eating meals together, sharing our lives together. And so that's why we've chosen to study the book of Luke. Now, this is one of those passages where I've been literally waiting since we started the book of Luke to get here. So um, at this point in the sermon, I don't know how many sermons you guys have sat through, but this is the catchy cliche, let me tell you a story, let me have this sweet little introduction so that I suck you into the sermon, but I don't have time for that. I didn't preach the last two weeks, and I'm already going to go long. So Luke 19, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. You guys ready? I know all of you just heard me say, I'm going to go long, and you want to leave but you're trapped. Luke 19, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. Now, just quickly, who has heard the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus? Okay, everyone look at me. Don't look at your Bible. Who would be brave enough to stand up and say, I can spell Zacchaeus? Any takers? 
Caleb's cheating right now. So, Caleb, you cannot stand up. And <laughs> you're the first person I looked at that might attempt it, but I see you looking at your Bible, so you have now disqualified. Literally, as I was writing this sermon, every time I typed Zacchaeus, I spelled it wrong. Every single time. So, no takers. I don't feel as dumb. 19 verse 1. Here we go. He, being Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Verse 3. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Verse 5. And when he, Jesus, came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Verse 7. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He who has gone in to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of all my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. Verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. Let's pray. And Father, thank you for your words. Jesus, thank you that you did live, that you did walk through this road. Father, this is a true account. This isn't a parable. This actually happened, and a man named Zacchaeus' life was changed for the better because of you and your truth and your love and your gospel. So this afternoon, as we read this text, as we study this text, as we pray over this text, Father, would you speak to us? Would you illuminate the truth of the gospel here? God, because this is the most powerful thing, that the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. So I thank you. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for what you're doing right now and what you're going to do. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So, although this is a pretty familiar story to the most of us, I just want to break it down real quick uh, because there's this huge conclusion that I want us to, to wrap around and to see from this text. But if you underline, if you mark, if you do anything, um, obviously 1910 is the crux of this story. For the Son of Man came to seek and save which was lost. And we're going to spend 90% of our time figuring out the ramifications of what that means and what that looks like. If there was a verse to pick, out of the Gospel of Luke that summarized the Gospel of Luke. This is it. This is what we believe. This is what we have heard and we have seen. So um, let's pick it up in verse 1 because the, the timing of this really matters. Um, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. So he was passing through to Jerusalem, which was his impending death. We'll see in a couple weeks that he knew where he was going was leading to his death. He had already told his Ricky priest a couple weeks ago that for the third time he laid out to his disciples, listen, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. This is for the good. This is what I must do. And the disciples kept missing it every single time. So this was his last stop on his way to his death. In verse 2, behold, there's a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. So we spent a lot of time talking about what a tax collector is as we've been working our way through the book of Luke, because Luke, for whatever reason, mentions these guys all the time. 
I mean, you would think that as you're writing what Jesus was doing, you would be talking about the Pharisees, the religious guys, the ones that have it all figured out. But Luke always keeps tying back to these guys, the tax collectors, the chief sinners, the scum of the earth, which should, if, if we are real about who we are, should give us hope that he didn't jump to the religious ones, that Luke always jumped to the sinful ones. And not only was Zacchaeus sinful as a tax collector because all he was was a glorified thief, but he was a chief tax collector. Now, if we just kind of imagine this a little bit, if he was a tax collector and that position was crooked, how much more crooked was a chief tax collector? I mean, this guy was like the worst of the worst. He was totally sinful, totally hated by all that was around him, and we'll see this. Verse 3, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. He was seeking to see who Jesus was was and this matters but on an account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature now we could kind of flesh this out a little bit if we wanted to but but there's a lot happening here right that he was seeking but why was he seeking because he had the question that a lot of us will wrestle with is there hope for a person like me that i've gone through this that i've experienced this that i've done this is there hope for someone like me so their own desperation is the one that leads them to seek. And he was small in stature. So not only was he a chief tax collector, he was small in stature. He was looking for answers. Anyone else been there? That we know we're sinful, we know we have no answers, and we're looking for them. But why? Verse 4, so he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for Jesus was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, Jesus stopped he looked up and said to Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So Jesus, now, now here's where we just have to start to break the paradigm of what we understand Jesus to be to what Jesus just showed us that he is. Because if we're not constantly doing that from Scripture, we all have this false facades of what religion is, what Jesus is, who God is. So as we're studying Scripture, we constantly have to be asking, is that the Jesus that I worship? Is that the Jesus that I know? Is that the Jesus that I have faith in? Because Jesus stopped. Now, we're not talking just stopped like he's walking by himself and stopped. I mean, there are massive crowds following Jesus. So for Jesus to stop, he totally went out his way, inconvenienced himself, probably had to hush the crowd and say, hold on, stop. Everyone stop for a second. He stopped. He initiated conversation with Zacchaeus, to sitting up in a tree, and he said, Zacchaeus, you must. There's no like, if you want to, how you feeling, Zacchaeus? You want to try this out? You, we must do this, Zacchaeus. We must do this. So in this interaction, we see that Jesus initiated all of it. So verse 6, the obvious reaction to this was that he came down and received him joyfully. So here's Zacchaeus that's looking for hope, that has no hope, that has put all of his hope and finances and power and control. All of this is leaving poor Zacchaeus hopeless. Of course, he's going to joyfully come down and run after Jesus. Verse 7, and we're going to spend a lot of time here in a minute, but I'm going to read over it real quick. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. This is the crowd. He has gone to be in the guest of a man who is a sinner. Verse 8. And, now look at this real quick for me. This is a better translation to say but. But, right? And should be but. But Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it 
fourfold. So by Jesus stopping, by Jesus initiating, by Jesus pursuing after Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus instantly goes, listen, anything that I have stolen, I give it back and I give it back fourfold. So the Levitical law would never ask Zacchaeus to do that. He would give back one-fifth of what he stole if he voluntarily disposed of that information. If he said, listen, I I haven't got caught, I'm not in trouble yet, but I'm coming forward, coming clean. So the rule in Leviticus would say, and even Numbers alludes to this, that is, I'm going to give back one-fifth of what I've taken. But what does Zacchaeus do? Gives back fourfold. So instantly, because the initiating love of Jesus Christ, who stopped, who stood up, who did not take no for an answer, Zacchaeus, you're coming with me. Instantly, the life of Zacchaeus is changed. Verse 9, and Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he is also a son of Abraham. So if we see this, we have to stop and go, how was Zacchaeus saved then? Because Luke records this in a really strange way, but for a good reason. Is he saved because he gave all that money back and plus some? I mean, that would be, if I'm just going to be honest for a second, that would be really convenient for me as a pastor that if you're in here this morning or this afternoon and you don't know Jesus, here's what you do. Go ahead and give me all that you have. That will secure your place in heaven, and then you'll be good for salvation. We good? Because I'd be probably driving a Bentley. That would be, not really, y'all are all like, like me. We have no money. But in theory, I mean, that's where some of this prosperity gospel started coming out, right? That I can, this is where the idea of indulgence has come from, that we want to know, I've done this. Does this mean I have salvation? I've given in. I mean, it's a very, um, whatever this word is, transactional, yes, because this is sign language for transactional, right? I was going to keep doing this until it feels awkward, which is now. So we want it to be transactional. We want to say, listen, I did this for Jesus. Now, Jesus, you give me salvation, and we're good, right? But that's not what took place. Salvation was in Zacchaeus' heart, which led him to give everything back and give it back fourfold. Why? Because Jesus stopped, because Jesus initiated, because Jesus gave Zacchaeus hope. So we, we can't miss this here. That the only reason salvation came to Zacchaeus' this day, the only reason that he did what he did, the only reason that his life was changed because Jesus stopped in the middle of this crowd. I mean, what would happen if Jesus wasn't going to Jericho? I mean, how much things had to line up for Zacchaeus to have hope this day? And we see this in verse 10, the culmination of this. For the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. But this is where I want us to just sit for the next little bit. So this morning, I've got four kids, seven, four, three, and almost two. And, and I was writing about it in the sermon last week, and then it actually happened this morning, where my three-year-old would just randomly come up, crawl on my lap, give me a big old kiss on the lips, and say, Dad, I love you. We'll get down and just go playing. And then my almost two-year-old would do the same thing, but she doesn't speak as eloquent as my three-year-old does, so it's more like, Dad, Bob, you and then runs off. And, but it's just, now listen, If you know anything about me, I am probably one of those manliest men you know, right? I have a, I don't know why you laugh. (laughs) I have a beard. I kill things for fun, right? I have a truck. I live in the South. I know what Copenhagen is. I am like thoroughly man. But when my little girls crawl in my lap and give me a kiss and tell me they love me unannounced, there's like 10 million rainbows have exploded in my heart. The joy that comes from that moment, I just can't, I can't keep in. Because I know that I'm not a good dad. Because I know that I lose my temper way more than I should. 
I know that there's moments I just don't want to go home because I don't want to get on the floor and play with my kids. That I know that there's just times where I'm done being a parent. I'm done adulting. I just want to do my own thing. I want to sit and watch the office. No, I don't want to play with you. I don't want to cut up your waffles. Why do you make a mess every single time we give you any article of food at all? Why do you constantly reach up on top of the counters? I've told you time and time and time again. Why do you crawl out of your crib for the upteenth million time? Stay in bed because that's where daddy wants to be, right? I don't know why you're running so hard because that's where all I want to do is get in bed. Please put me in time out. That sounds fint, right? I mean, I could just go on and on and on. So when they tell me they love me, I don't feel like I deserve it. I don't feel like I've earned that. I don't, I don't know where this comes from, but it melts my heart. It means something. And so when Emerson got up in my lap and did that this morning, my prayer is that that never gets old. There's never a moment where I go, yeah, you, you have to say that. I mean, I couldn't plan this any better. Uh, Auburn, my oldest, was standing over there worshiping earlier with us, and I reached over to grab her hand, and she said, no, Dad, not here. <laughs> Three-year-old for seven-year-old, right? <laughs> Every time before I get up and preach, I'll kiss my wife on the lips, and if any of the kids are around, I'll give them a kiss. Uh, kissed Carolee, went to kiss Auburn, and she turned her head and told me to kiss her cheek, right? We're, we're seeing this maturation take place. And I, and I just hope that I never get old, I, it never gets tiring, that I have kids that love me, that I have a wife that loves me. But church, I'm concerned for my own soul and for yours that Luke 19.10 gets old. That we can read that Jesus seeks and saves that which was lost and then just glance right over it like nothing happened. I'm concerned that this, this, the apex of the book of Luke, and I'm talking to me as much as you, the apex of the book of Luke, that the Son of Man, that Jesus Christ came to this earth to seek and save that which was lost, means almost nothing to us. Because, church, there, there's nothing more than this. I mean, what is the gospel? Why do we worship? Why do we gather? What is Christianity? It's this. There's nothing deeper than this fact. There's nothing grander than this fact. The fact that Jesus Christ came to seek and save, which was lost, is it. There, there's nothing else. And if you have any kind of church background, this has just turned into white noise for us. Yeah, of course he did. Of course, at one point in our Christianity, at one point in our journey, that, that made 10,000 rainbows explode in our heart. I cannot believe that a God would send his son down for me, to seek and save me. But the more mature we get in our faith, the more we just start to write this stuff off. So I just want to spend a few moments just looking, di dissecting this sentence and, and maybe wrestle with some of the implications here. Because what does it mean? If, if I'm an arguing man, if we start here, that Jesus came to seek and save, which was lost, I would say that most of us, 99% of us, would disagree and would wrestle with this idea of what it means to be lost. Because Zacchaeus didn't, because of the way his friends treated him, because of the way his family treated him, because of the way society treated him, he knew that he was the outcast. He knew that he was lost. He knew that he was so far gone. But us that have grown up in the church, us that have grown up with a great life, we don't really know what it means to be lost because we've never really been that bad. So you've been in a church, you've been in a service, you've heard these guys talk about, yeah, I smoked crack and shot a guy and it was crazy and everyone just looked at me right now the moment I said that. If I've lost your attention, I just got it. I think Christian Brooks just snapped his neck when he looked up at me. But that's the story that we want. That's the testimony that we hear that, that those guys were lost. But me, 
Man, like, I stole a Gatorade in third grade. That's about the worst I got, right? So we wrestle with that, like, was I ever lost here? So if you would, flip over with me to Romans 3. I just want to see this for ourselves. Because maybe a reason this has turned into white noise, that the idea that Jesus came to seek and save which was lost doesn't matter is because we don't understand the weight of what it means to be lost. Romans 3, we're going to pick it up in, in verse 9. And what's happening here is just the culmination of what happened in Genesis, in the garden, that when sin entered the world through one man, all men were cursed. And we see this playing out. Romans 9, we're going to pick it up. Or excuse me, Romans 3. Have I been saying Romans 9? 3, okay, my bad. Romans 3, pick it up in verse 9. Y'all don't want me to go to Romans 9 right now. Romans 3. And if you... <laughs> That was such a churchy joke. If you didn't get that, don't sweat it. You're fine. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For all, for, excuse me, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, both Americans and Gentiles, both all of us in this room are under sin. Verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And if you hear that being read over you and you want to argue with that, then you don't understand the lostness of your soul. That, that lostness for us isn't like a, like, guys, raise your hand if you've ever actually been lost. For the few guys in the room, thank you for your honesty. For the rest, you're liars. Thank you for proving my point, right? So when we're lost, we can find our own way back. Just give us enough time. Just give us a GPS. Just give us our bearings. Give me a map, and I can find our way back. But the lostness it's talking about in Scripture is that we are lost completely, and there's no way, there's no left, no right, no technology, no nothing that can ever get us back to the point of not being lost. Maybe a better way to say this is hopeless. When you are hopeless, it doesn't matter how much you want hope, you can't find hope. That they're hopeless literally means to have no hope. So it doesn't mean that more of no hope is going to lead to hope. It's going to be even deeper in your depravity, deeper into hopelessness. So the more we try to solve our lostness problem by comparing ourselves to this or thinking, oh, we're not that bad, is going to lead us deeper into our lostness because that's pride. That we are lost, that we are sinners, that there's nothing we can do. Now listen, I, I know your mom has told you you're great and everything's fine, and I just want to affirm that for a second, but just be real with me for a minute. Is there something that you've continued to struggle with your entire life? I mean, just one thing. I know you've probably gotten better at time management, and you don't cuss as much as you used to, and like you were in this really bad relationship, but you broke up because go you, and you're doing fantastic right now, but is there not one sin that you have yet to fix? There are one sin that no matter how much you white knuckle it, how much you try to fix it, you cannot control this thing. So what does that mean? That you're a good person that just has occasional sin and that you're a lost person that occasionally stumbles upon goodness. You are lost. We are lost. This isn't a bad thing. This is why Paul goes all throughout Scripture, boast in your weakness, boast in your weakness, because that's when Christ gets sweeter. So there's a time in our life where all of us were lost. 
because we are sinners and there's nothing we can do about it. Romans said, because the sin of one man, all have sinned. And even the most righteous deeds we do are like filthy rags. There's nothing. There's no hope. So take yourself out of the equation for a second and go back to Zacchaeus. Why do you think Zacchaeus was so desperate to seek Jesus? Because he's tried everything else. If you are hopeless, you have tried everything and nothing has given you the results that you long for. You have no hope. Has anyone watched Saved by Bell growing up? Say Brother Bell. Do y'all remember the episode where they filmed the commercial? There's no hope in dope. Let's continue. That was definitely not in my notes, but. So Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. So if we have an idea of what lostness is, then then what is seek? What does it mean for Jesus to seek? Because again, I want to just push back on culture a little bit. What does the Bible say and what have we experienced? Because all of us have probably experienced this level of, well, you need to get back in church. It's up to you to seek after God. Well, well, Pastor, like I prayed the prayer. I was the one that walked the aisle. It was, it was me that seeked after Jesus. Jesus never pursued me. I was the one that pursued. I was the one that did everything. I got up early. I got to church. I was the one that said the prayer. I was the one that walked the aisle. I did this, 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 this. Jesus never actually seeked me. Things would probably look a lot different if he would have. I was the one that did everything. And we feel this. And I'm not telling you what you feel isn't real, but I'm telling you it's just not right. Biblically, what we see is Jesus walking through a very certain time and place for a purpose, which was Zacchaeus. There was no accident that Jesus was walking where he walked. He was seeking after Zacchaeus. It was no accident that Jesus stopped where he did because he was seeking Zacchaeus. And if you're here in this room, it's because Jesus is seeking after you. If we're lost, if there's no hope for us, then C.S. Lewis calls the Holy Ghost hounds. That he's released these Holy Ghost hounds that are wooing you back to him. That Jesus is the one that is seeking. And here's just two simple texts that probably all of us have heard that would help prove this. John 3.16, who has a t-shirt with it on it? Right? For God so loved the world that he gave, that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, was that you seeking him or was that him seeking you? Where were you at in that story? You were the target of God's sentness through Christ, that he was seeking after you. John 20, 21 would put it this way. um, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, now I'm sending you. So the Father was sent for Zacchaeus. He is sending the Spirit for us. That He is seeking after us with everything He has. Jesus is the one who seeks. Jesus is the one who goes after the lost. Jesus seeks and saves that which was lost. Now, if you have any history, any background in church, you know that, that Jesus saves, bro, like the brother that kind of like, it's just, so let's just go to First Peter. What does that mean then? If we can just be honest, drop the church cliche, what does it mean that Jesus saves? First Peter 2 um, outlines this pretty perfect for us. And, and there's so many, I could have gone to Ephesians 2 and, and Romans 3 and Romans 6, but, but First Peter 2 was the one that we landed on tonight because what does it mean for us to be saved? 
Jesus seeks and saved that which was lost. 1 Peter 2, pick it up in verse 22, says this. He being Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judged justly. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, quoting Isaiah here, by his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now you've been returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. So, so what does salvation mean? What is this that we talk about when we say the gospel? One of the best, most simplest definitions I've heard is that Jesus in my place. So what does salvation mean? What does the gospel mean? It means Jesus in my place. That Jesus took my place. That if I was lost, if I was going astray, then that's what I deserved unless something intervened. So therefore, Jesus had to seek after us because there's no way we were ever seeking after him in our sin, in our hopelessness, in our depravity. So he had to seek. He had to run after us. And he took then our place. That's what it means to be saved. I think when we hear the word saved, here, the, the middle image that comes to my mind, because um, I watch a lot of YouTube, anyone else? Cool. One, two, three. Perfect. Uh, four. Thanks. Was that you, Elliot? Oh, thanks, buddy. Uh, thanks, AJ. So as I'm t- watching YouTube, I love to watch videos of like near death. I don't know, maybe that's a weird thing, but um, all these people have been saved and like someone jumps and tackles them out of the way in front of the train or the car or the bus or whatever it is, and both of them in these videos are saved. So that's what we think of when we think Jesus saved me is that he tackled me out of danger, and now we're like, man, thank you so much for saving me, but that's not biblical salvation, is it? Biblical salvation is Jesus running in front of the bus, pushing us out of the way and getting destroyed by the bus. Biblical salvation is him jumping in the train tracks, throwing us up on top of the walkway, and him taking the punishment for us. That is what true salvation looks like. So when we see that he was bored or he was punished for our sins, that by his wounds then we are healed, this is what salvation means. 2 Corinthians, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God, so that we might be saved. So let's just be clear here. Jesus seeks and Jesus saves. So if we're hopeless in here, if we are the lost, if we were lost at one point, if we have no hope, then nothing should make us more excited than this that we were hopeless, that we were lost, that we were the sheep without a shepherd. Because of God and his grace, he seeked us and he saved us. He brought us out of darkness. He took the punishment for us so that we can become the sons and daughters of God. That's what this means. And there's no higher calling, there's no higher celebration than this. What do you think the angels are constantly flying around heaven singing? That he is holy, that he is good, because he took his place for us. So, so then what does it mean for us? Because I know that, that as we're studying Scripture, yes, we should celebrate and we should understand what it means to the original audience, what is the character and nature of God out of this, but where do we fit into this equation? Where are we in this story? So I want you to jump back to verse 7, because I want us to see something pretty profound here. Jump back to verse 7 for me, Luke 19, verse 7. Luke 19, verse 7. 
And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He is gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Who is saying this? This massive crowd, and, and, and Luke doesn't give us too many parameters about who this crowd is. We know the Pharisees, the religious guys were mixed in, but we all know it's just a bunch of people that have seen the miracles of Jesus. As, as his popularity has grown, these people are just sucked into or following Jesus everywhere. And the moment that he stops, he hushes the crowd. He says, Zacchaeus, come here. Let's go hang out. I'm going to your house. They all start to mumble and grumble and complain. Now, just real quick, who was the only child in here growing up? Only child. I guess you're probably still the only child if you were. Okay. This means nothing to you. Raise your hand if you had siblings growing up. Who of you got in trouble for not sharing? Only child, you're good. You didn't have to share with anybody. What did that feel like? I had two brothers. I, everything was theirs. Nothing was mine. Until I got a little older, a little scrappy. And then by whatever reason, the Lord saw me fit to be a lot bigger than my older brother. And it was on. And it was awesome. And my wife can attest, I've chased him around cars numerous times to give him my stuff. So, um, just kidding, I, it, that was separate circumstances. But, but if we've grown up with siblings, right, we're all learning this idea that we have to share whatever's yours, you have to share. We've been born into socialism, what's mine is yours, what's yours is yours. It's fine, everyone share. Every, that was a joke, by the way, don't go too political. It's late, I'm having fun, just go with it, right? We have to share. We hear that all over the time. And, but it hasn't stopped, right? Now that we've grown up, we're not arguing about Bigfoot and our, I don't know what girls used to share, tiddlywinks or whatever, but like my race cars, we don't have to share that stuff. But, but now it's maybe people, right? Like I get really selfish with my family. If I finally have family time, I don't want to share my family. No, you can't come over. Go away. This is my family. Or maybe it's experiences that you found this perfect hike that you don't want anyone else to be a part of. Or you found this club. You found this group of people that you want to spend time with and you, you don't want to share with anyone else. But the most horrific scene in this story happens in verse 7. That the crowd was unwilling to share. Listen, church, just look at me real quick. It was those that were closest to Jesus that kept Zacchaeus away from Jesus. It was those that were closest to Jesus that almost kept Zacchaeus away from Jesus. So if you have any history in church, any back you hear, man, sin's going to lead you astray. You better not do that and that because you're going to get farther from Jesus. Listen to what I'm saying based on Scripture. It was, if it wasn't for that tree, what would have happened to poor Zacchaeus? Because those that were closest to Jesus were doing all they had to keep everyone away from Jesus. And this is where this story almost takes a turn. This is where for us, this is where we have to wrestle with. Because this crowd almost messed it up. Praise God for that tree. Because who knows what have had the trajectory of Zacchaeus' life would have looked different. And listen, it's not because of drugs. It's not because of alcohol. It's not because of partying or this lifestyle or that lifestyle that kept Zacchaeus away from Jesus. It was those closest to Jesus that almost kept Zacchaeus away from Jesus. Now we just have to, does anyone know what Selah means? So if you're reading through Psalms, right, you'll see this word Selah. It's a musical term. 
where have you guys been to like a, like not a concert, but like an orchestra kind of concert, like symphony? Have you all been to one of those? And the music stops and there's just that moment where the, the music's just kind of reverberating in the room and people haven't started clapping yet. They're just sitting in that moment where even though the music is over, it still is just a sweet voice into our ears, that moment of stopping and reflecting on what you just heard. So as you're reading through Psalms and you see this word Selah, it means stop, revisit, rethink of what you just heard because this is a beautiful thing that just took place. And for us to have a Selah moment, to stop and read over and rethink what just took place because those that are closest to Jesus almost turn Zacchaeus away. Now, and we know this. I mean, it's not going to have to, what do most non-Christians say about Christians? Oh, they're hypocrites. They do this, they do this. So this isn't some new revelation for us, that those that claim to be close to Jesus are the ones that actually 90% of the time pushing people away from Jesus. We have to stop. We have to consider this. Who are we? Listen, I just, I just want to be honest with you for a second. I know that I can be harsh and sarcastic and fun, and maybe I just added fun. Good-looking and handsome, and just, I'm just that guy that everyone loves to be around, right? Like, just kidding. But I want you to stop for a second, because a lot of times we put ourselves in these stories like, oh, I've got to be like Jesus. I've got to be like Jesus. Listen, you're not Jesus. You have no ability to save a man or woman's soul. That is not in your prerogative. So what Jesus is teaching us is Jesus' mission was to seek and save that which was lost. Man's mission is to seek those that are lost and bring them to the one who can save, which is Jesus. And the crowd destroyed that. So, so what is our mission then? What do we do if we cannot save? We still seek the lost, but we bring them to the one that can save, which is Jesus Christ. That is all that we're here for. That is all that we do. That is our mission, to seek the lost and bring them to the one that can save, Jesus Christ. That is who we are. That is what we do. But we just have to wrestle with this idea that we're not doing a great job at it. There's a quote from C.S. Lewis that says this. The church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to seek the lost, bring them to the Savior, to make them little Christ. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, all the clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose, if even doubtful, you know, whether the whole universe was created for any other purposes. So what happens then if, if we aren't a hindrance to people coming to find Jesus? If we're actually someone that ushers people to Jesus? One of my favorite stories in Scripture is the woman at the well. And that's what she does. When she has a face-to-face encounter with Jesus, what does she do? She runs off to her village and brings them all back. You've got to meet this guy. What do you think Zacchaeus did? He ran out to all of his tax collector friends. You've got to come meet this guy. What do the crowds do? Us four, no more. Get away. I'm close to Jesus. You get out of here. So church, we have to wrestle with, is that us? Are those around us, are we leading them to the saving power of Jesus Christ, or are we hindering them from getting there? Are we the crowd? I mean, what would the story, and I'm not trying, if you've heard this, I want to be sensitive to how I say this because I know the heart behind it. But I've heard this text preached, and like, man, we need to be that tree. We need to be the sycamore that, that raises people up so they can see Jesus. I don't want to be an inanimate object. I don't want to be something with bark. 
what we should preach is, listen, and I don't even know if a sycamore tree has bark, to be honest. Maybe it doesn't. But what we should be is we should say, no, I want to be the man in the crowd, the woman in the crowd, the sole one that's pushing all these fake believers away so that Zacchaeus has a clear direction to Jesus Christ. That's who I want to be. That's who I want you to be. That's what the church should be. That we should be released. Jesus, I love you, but I'm going to go get some people and bring them back to you. So, so give me 10 minutes. I'm not just going to selfishly huddle around you. Give me 10 minutes. Let me go get Zacchaeus because I know that brother's hopeless. Let me bring him back so that you can save him. Let me bring him to the saving power of Jesus Christ. That's who we should be. That's what we should be pursuing. So we have to wrestle with, are we the crowd in this story that are keeping people from him? Because as C.S. Lewis says, that's all we are here for. That's all we are here for. So let me just, in our last remaining moments, let me just be honest. I'm going to read some things for us. Because there's this huge, this recent study done by kind of a, a huge group of people that have come around and said, okay, what is the true state of Christianity in America? What, what is really happening here? Is the church actually seeking the lost and bringing them back to the Savior? Or are we the crowd that's pushing people away? And the next 30 years represents the largest mission opportunity in North American history. Between now and the year 2050, it's estimated there will be an upwards of 35 million younger men and women who claimed Christ and were associated with the church who leave their faith. The next 30 years estimated 35 million It's the largest, this is a direct quote from the study. It's the largest and fastest numerical shift in religious affiliation in the history of this country. Even in the most optimistic scenarios, Christianity affiliations in the U.S. shrinks dramatically. And in our base case, over one million youth at least normally in the church today will choose to leave each year for the next three decades. 35 million youth raised in families that call themselves Christians will say they are not by 2050. And these numbers don't even take into consideration the growing population, newer generations that are estranged from the church and don't have anything to do with religion. 35 million in the next 30 years are going to fall away from the faith. And I would argue that it's because the crowd mentality has sought in. That we're not seeking the lost and bringing them to the Savior. We're just more concerned with, am I here? Am I close enough to Jesus to be good? I'm going to check this box and go on my way. So the answer to this, what we start to wrestle with and, and where the branch is really big in is church planting, right? Like, let's plant more churches which would disciple more people, which give more opportunities for those to seek the lost and bring them to the Savior. So here we go. Here's where this is happening. Church plant in the U.S. will need to double to triple from the current population just to keep the churches open. Currently, there are 4,000 churches planted every year in the U.S. That sounds fantastic. 3,700 evangelical churches close every year. So we're at a net gain of 300 churches per year across the country. So 4,000 churches are planted, 3,700 close, net gain of 300. So to keep pace with these statistics above, we need to be planting a net positive of 8,000 churches every year. Just to keep up with the trends that we see. So we have to somehow go from 300 churches a year 
to 8,000 a year to even keep up with this. Now, you know me well enough to know I'm all about church planning. But if we're planning churches that just imitate the crowd that we see around Jesus in Luke 19, then why do we even bother? Why do we even waste our time, energy, or effort? David Platt says this way, I'm convinced that the greatest need in the church today is not more money, it's not more power, it's not more prestige, it's not even more people. It's not more education, it's not more political influence. I believe the greatest need in the church today is more men, women, and students who believe in Jesus Christ and have embraced him to rise up and be the disciples that the scripture teaches us to be. So Jesus keeps teaching this, and next week we're going to start to dissect a little bit more practicality of how, why do we act this way? Why do we do the things that we do? But here's the question as we start to end tonight. And and this is just you, because there's going to be a couple camps in the room. But have you came to grips with the fact that Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost? And have you came to grips that you were the one that was lost? And if it wasn't for Jesus Christ, there's no way you can be saved. And first and foremost, have you entered into salvation? Have you put your faith and hope in Jesus Christ alone? And if we have, then we have to wrestle with the question, am I the crowd? Am I actually seeking the lost and bringing them to Jesus? Or am I the crowd that's keeping people away from Jesus? Which one is it? And so we take communion at the end of every gathering just to to keep us true to the gospel, to remember all that Jesus has done for us. And this is a perfect time for us, especially if you're a believer in this room, to, to ask this, to process this, to wrestle with this. Are we the crowd that's keeping people from Jesus? Or are we that lone man or woman in the crowd that's saying, no, Get out of my way. I'm going to go seek the lost and bring them back to the Savior. That's what we do. So if you're not yet a believer this this morning, excuse me, I've only said it once. That's pretty good in the last 45 minutes. Uh, I think I have only said it once. If you're a new believer in this room, thank you. We're glad that you're here. If you're not yet a believer in this room, we're so glad that you're here. We'd ask that you not participate in communion yet because this is this means the world to us. This is where we identify that Christ has died for us and we accept his, his uh, sin being poured onto him as the reconciliation for Christ, as the propitiation for Christ. But if we are believers in this room, then we have to wrestle with, are, are we the crowd or are we the individual that's running out? So as we pray, I mean, after I pray, we'll get up and we'll take communion. I just want us to wrestle with that question. Are we leading people to Jesus Are we keeping people away from Jesus? So let's pray. Father, thank you for what you're doing here. Thank you that you are convicting us. Father, that you're asking us really hard questions. God, because we do want to follow your example, Jesus. We want to seek the lost. We want to embrace the Zacchaeus and the ones that aren't like us, the ones that scare us, the ones that might be different from us, Father. We know that you love them. and We know that you came to the, this earth, you lived a sinless life, and you died on the cross for them. And we want to love them. We want to seek and we want to lead the lost back to you, their Savior. 
So God, I ask us tonight, would you speak to us? Would you convict us if we are keeping those away from Jesus? Would you let us know that if we're this crowd that that as we should bring people closer to you, we're actually keeping people far away from you. Would you remind us of that? God, because nothing separated us from you. You did everything to get to us. As you came to this earth, that you lived a sinless life, that you died a death you didn't deserve. Father, you came after us with full force. You didn't casually seek, you ran. Father, that's who we want to be. We want to run to the lost around us. To those who have no hope, how selfish would we be if we know the hope of the Savior? How selfish would we be to not give hope to those that have no hope? To give grace to those who've never experienced grace. To give love to those who have no love. Are we the crowds keeping people from Jesus? Jesus, if we are, as we take communion this morning, as we remember all that you've done for us, Father, if we are the crowds, we know that you're faithful and just to forgive us. We know that if we confess our sins to you, you will not hold them against us. You will not hold a grudge. So, Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. God, give us the courage and give us the boldness to seek the lost around us and bring them to you, our Savior. So church, communion will be open. Whenever you're ready, take communion. We'll continue in worship and we can uh, wrestle in the grace and the goodness of God. Amen.